Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. And last week, we did an introduction to non-duality. So in last week's lecture, we essentially looked at Advaita Vedanta, or Hindu non-duality, in the context of the other great spiritual and philosophical traditions of the world. So we investigated scientific materialism, the belief in matter and energy as the fundamental basis of reality, with consciousness as an emergent property. We evaluated the various positive aspects and also drawbacks of that school, scientific materialism. Then we looked at dualistic religion, the idea that there is a God standing apart from um, the universe and as such created the universe through an act of will. And we looked at the various uh, positive aspects and also drawbacks of that approach. Then we looked at Buddhism closer to scientific materialism and we studied some very subtle um, points about Buddhist philosophy and what it is really that the Buddhists are saying. And then we looked at uh, a personal favorite, Hindu non-duality or Advaita Vedanta, with the idea of showing how Advaita Vedanta was uniquely able to, on a philosophical basis, um, reconcile or solve for much of the discrepancies and failings of the other school. In other words, uh, other schools. So in other words, Advaita Vedanta, I posited to you humbly, um, is a school of philosophy that redeems, unifies, and ties together the various other streams of thought and streams of mystical spiritual traditions. Um, that being said, I told you last week that if you were to conceive of the uh, Indian spiritual scene as a garden, then uh, Advaita Vedanta or Hindu non-duality would be the most fragrant flower in that garden. So that was the claim I uh, uh, somewhat presumptuously made last week. Now, I want to offer a disclaimer here. It is but one flower among many in a very wide garden. So South Asian philosophy is uh, tremendously variegated, tremendously varied, and there is such range of thought in just one part of India alone, to say nothing of the pan-Indian philosophical tradition, to say nothing of the... Uh, uh, Indic civilizations like in Tibet, you know, the Indo-European civilizations say nothing of the Southeast Asian civilizations like Indonesia and uh, Malaysia and all the various uh, tantric kingdoms that went out on colonial expeditions to say nothing of Buddhism in Coptic Egypt. Um, it's a very broad school. That being the case, Advaita Vedanta is but one flavor among many, and it just so happens to be my personal favorite. And it just so happens that many of you here are drawn to that philosophy. And as we delve into Advaita Vedanta, let's make it very clear that there are other approaches. There are other ways up the same mountain, and they are all just as valid as any other path. Truth is one, the paths to truth are many. So as we recite in the Rig Veda, somewhere around 4th century millennium before Common Era, Ekam Sat Vipra Bahuda Vadanti. Truth is one, though sages in different places call it by different names. Now the reason that can be is because truth is not a belief. 
It's not a dogma. It isn't a certain system of thought. Truth is an experience. Much like beauty, much like salvation, much like enlightenment, the uh, truth we're talking about here is an experience, an experience that anybody can have. It's not an experience that's exclusive to a few select prophets or a few select individuals in history. It's not an experience that you have to earn. It's not a really even an experience that you can have. Rather, it's uh, simply relaxing into what is already here for you now. Given that, once you taste the depth and profundity of what it is the Christ was smoking. That is, once you understand why it is that all the mystics in the world are so drunk and inebriated, having not consumed a single drop of grog, um, welcome Austin, then uh, once you taste that, you will know that truth is ineffable and as such has myriad expressions, in fact has countless innumerable expressions. So one person's application and explanation of truth is but one facet of the same truth. All right. Uh, with that disclaimer in mind, today we're going to take up a very serious inquiry in the uh, study of religion and in the study of philosophy. And that inquiry is called uh, commonly as theodicy, the inquiry into the problem of evil. So I suppose we should have saved this for Halloween, but let's just pretend it's Halloween now. Let's pretend we're all wearing our costumes and I'm dressed as the devil. Um, Austin has a devil goatee right there. And we're going to say ha as we ponder as to the existence of evil. Now, the reason we're doing a whole lecture about this is because last week we pointed out evil as one of the drawbacks of dualistic religion. And uh, unfortunately, we merely glossed over the Advaitic uh, approach to evil. And I noticed that it stirred up quite a bit of discussion. So the chat was aflame. There was much resistance to the idea that there is no such thing as evil. And uh, Fabricio, John and I had a beautiful conversation conversation well into the night as to the ontological role of evil in our universe. So the questions for today's lecture are as follows. Does evil exist? Is it metaphysically real? Is there such a thing in our universe as the will to evil? Um, and if so, what does that look like? What is it to be evil? What does an evil person think? Or what does an evil person feel um, such that they commit evil? And not just that, the more important question, what do we do about it? You know, how do we act in the face of evil? And in fact, how do we even live in a world in which evil exists, in which evil inheres? Um, so we're going to define evil. And to do that, we're going to look at all the different definitions throughout the garden of Indian philosophy. So we'll pick up one flower, we'll sniff it, we'll put it down, we'll pick up another. Please feel free to put whatever flowers you want in your bag and go away with whatever it is that suits you. Different strokes for different folks. All right. Um, not just that, after looking at the various schools of Indian philosophy, we'll look at some uh, Bhagavad Gita. We'll look at what evil is like in the Bhagavad Gita. And then finally, we'll end with some uh, Kantian philosophy. So we'll look at Kantian morality um, to show you how Kant is ultimately a non-dualist and how the highest uh, echelons of Western philosophy echo some of the findings of non-duality. All right. Uh, that's where we're going. As you can see, there's quite a bit of road to cover ahead of us. So let's just get right into it, shall we? Um, please feel free 
to drop questions in the chat at any point during today's lecture. Do not believe a single word I say regarding any of the topics we're going to be talking about. Remember, truth is not a dogma, it isn't a belief system. It's simply one way of explaining our own encounters with life. That is to say, we must proceed based on our own experience. If something is to be true, it must be true for you. That being the case, feel free to drop in the chat any objections you might have, any questions, and at the end of this two-hour lecture, we'll do another four or five hours of Q&A. Now, of course, if you can't stay all the way throughout the lecture, uh, put the question in the chat and we'll try to get to it, and you might watch it in the recording later. All right, that's our housekeeping. Let's do it. Evil. What is it? You know, and we, we hear the word evil, and we might think the SpongeBob episode where we get a very functional definition of evil. Every villain is lemons. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes the SpongeBob references don't work, but one can only pray. So what is it? What is it to be evil? What is it to will evil? Now, generally speaking, we consider evil to be the intent to inflict harm onto another. That is, in, in place of evil, we might use the word malevolence or a will to harm. And that is the idea that there are certain individuals in our life and in history who have been known to exacerbate the harms of the world. They might have been political leaders. They might have been individuals prowling Berkeley in a car to uh, kidnap people and kill them. Um, and we've given various labels to such people. You know, we've called them monsters, we've called them psychopaths or sociopaths, we've called them narcissists, we've called them crazy, we've used various words to try to put this kind of person um, into a kind of uh, parsable, understandable category. Not just that, we've created a category and in it we've thrown all the dictators like Pol Pot and Hitler, we've thrown all the serial killers and psychopaths like Dahmer um, and the guy from Silence of the Lambs. What is it? Hannibal Lecter, uh, Jack the Ripper. We've put all of them in this one broad category. And not just that, we've gone further to say that these people, all of them, are categorically different from us. They think categorically differently. They, th uh, they think in a categorically different way. They see the world in a different way. And as such, their responses to the world are so different from ours that they create unimaginable evil, you know. So let's just use that as a functional definition for evil today. The existence of pain in the world and the existence of agents, whether it be in history or in your personal life, who have exacerbated that pain, have increased disease, have increased death, have increased torture, have increased chaos. This is what we consider to be evil. Now, inevitably, we cannot ignore the appearance of evil. So no one is going to say evil doesn't exist. I mean, you see it. You read the history books and you hear about great atrocities committed in the name of some god or some national ideal or some religious structure. Uh, you hear about evil on the news. Even tonight, as you turn on the telly, you will hear about various horrific things being inflicted upon people all over the world, in the Middle East, in Europe, uh, in your own neighborhood. Some of you might actually hear gunshots outside and think to yourself, evil is being done out there somewhere. Some of you might have been victims of said evil. You might feel yourself to have in your own personal history suffered some form of evil from some kind of wrongdoer in your personal life. All right. So it cannot be ignored that the appearance of evil is certainly universal. 
such that we're all on the same page now, hopefully, as to what it is we're circambulating around. What it is that we're trying to get at when we say evil, when we say evildoers. We all know how that feels, looks, and tastes. So uh, maybe public enemy number one for today's discussion might be someone like Hitler, who was not only uh, instrumental in causing tremendous harm, but was also someone that was very psychologically fascinating in history because we became obsessed to try to understand how it is a person could come to be that way. You know, like, how is it? Uh, and, and, and all sorts of theories abound, right? Oh, he was angry that he didn't get into art school, and he blamed the Jewish elite that presided over the academia of his time. He read Nietzsche's sister's version of Nietzsche, and he became obsessed with the creditor-debtor relationship and wanted to um, tear down the Jewish elite of Germany. He wanted to restore Germany's pride, having lost World War I. After the sacking of Alsace-Lorraine, he felt like the only way to bring Germany back onto the world stage is to vanquish an old enemy, the Slavs. His mother was treated by a Jewish doctor, and perhaps he resented the doctor for the death of his mother. He was influenced by some weird pseudo-philosophy um, in which he placed himself and the German peoples as the superior race, and as such, truly believed that other races had to be ended for the good of all humanity. So how could a person come to think those things? And not just that, how could a person come to do what Hitler did? How could Pol Pot decide one day that everybody who wore glasses in Cambodia was evil because glasses were a symbol of the bourgeoisie and as such had to be dragged off to the killing fields and subject to horrible torture and death, a kind of horror that still echoes poignantly in said fields. One need only go to Auschwitz and Dachau to feel the skin crawl, to feel the darkness and tremor of that evil. You know, one might even look into the eyes of a fellow human and see there a complete lack of empathy that chills you to the very bone such that you think to yourself, evil must exist. I am looking at it now. You know, when you go to Starbucks and you order the coffee and then the name shows up and it's not your name, there is true evil in the world, isn't there? <laughs> no, not to be flippant. We all experience the appearance of evil. Let's start today's lecture by acknowledging that. We cannot deny that on the level of appearance, evil occurs. Now, non-duality proposes the following. The appearance of a thing is not enough to prove its existence. Metaphysically speaking, the appearance of a mirage in the desert does not imply water or palm trees. And in fact, unskillful living results from superimposing reality onto the mirage. So if you actually believed in the appearance hovering before your eyes, you might take your camel or your caravan and take a 40-day trek, which might take you into more desolation and you might die of thirst, eventually clawing at dust and air and frustration. The, the, the risk of believing in a mirage is quite severe. The risk of believing in appearances leads to tremendous suffering in our personal lives and in the lives of others. So Advaita Vedanta or Hindu non-duality wants to make this point first and foremost. A stick that appears bent in water is not necessarily bent. Uh, and a mirage that appears in the desert does not imply water. The dream reality does not imply reality. And as such, Advaita is so bold as to say, Evil doesn't exist except in appearance. 
So that's the grand claim that I hope to make today. Um, and I hope that we can, God willing, motivate how it is Advaita Vedanta arrives at such a conclusion. And not just that, I hope to sell you on the benefit of arriving at such a conclusion yourself. Not just on the matter of belief. You know, I hope that no one will walk out of here saying, some drunken monkey on the internet said evil doesn't exist. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Good golly gee, you know? No, I hope that today's lecture can point to something that everybody can experience and verify um, in their own lives. All right, so that's where we're headed. Now that we know what evil is, let's look at the various ways our society tries to deal with that evil, you know? Um, most of us agree on the definition of the appearance of evil. Now, when we look at scientific materialism, the approach there is to create a psychological category that describes why it is certain people do evil unto others. So we might use the label sociopath or psychopath or narcissist. And if anybody's visited uh, the TikTok threads, you know, on my comment threads, you'll see there is tremendous agitation and cogitation as to what those words mean. Because who, who knows, right? Like, how do you define a, a psychopath? And how is that um, different from a sociopath? Sometimes you hear people describing a sociopath the way someone else might say psychopath. Uh, you hear people describing narcissist as the most innocent word in the world. Oh, we're all narcissists to some extent. And then other psychologists say it's a deep pathology that results in a feeling of alienation from people around you, resulting in tremendous heinous acts of abuse. So notice that words like psychopath, sociopath, or narcissist don't exactly explain much. They don't point to a coherent universal reality that we can all agree on. Everybody has a different way of understanding that word, psychopath. But broadly speaking, it's a word that we use to otherize. So at least let's make this point. When you call someone a psychopath or sociopath, in other words, when you call yourself a psychopath or sociopath, you are in effect otherizing others from you and you from others. You are saying that on the level of neuroscience, your synaptic firing is different categorically. I'm going to say categorically a lot today since Kant has entered today's room um, and, uh, you know, categorical imperative. <laughs> someone said uh, at the temple the other day, we should create a tea drinking game. Um, and it's every time we say par excellence, peace and blessings be upon him, or categorical. <laughs> yeah, so that's our game. Okay, so when we say someone is a psychopath, sociopath, or narcissist, often we are saying they're wired differently. They are fundamentally different human beings. They're on a different plane altogether, and therefore they operate from a different set of motives. They do not dip their fingers into the collective pool of morals that the rest of us seem to find so universal. That is how people can commit acts of war, uh, atrocities in war, uh, because they're just wired differently. They don't understand when, when, when suffering is happening in other people. So that's the approach of scientific materialism. Uh, not, uh, we won't say too much about it now, but simply note that the effect this has in our uh, dealing with such people. You know, we put them aside and we say they're different. Or if we feel ourselves to be evil, we put us away from everyone else and kind of go to the corner and, and feel awful about it because we're so fundamentally different. Okay, so that's at least the packaging you get from scientific materialism. Why did this packaging arise? It's because scientific materialism as a philosophical school has a penchant for objectifying things. That is, it likes to study things on a supposedly objective level or a reductionist level. That is to say, um, matter and energy come first, 
And that's because matter and energy can be studied. You can look at it. You can put it under a microscope. You can make certain generalized claims about it um, and call that laws of the universe. And so it's very kind of convenient. And not only that, it's functional. Looking at the world objectively has given us uh, hygiene systems that ensure clean water. It ensures the electricity runs all day. It ensures that there is a Starbucks down the road in which we can freak out when uh, we don't get the coffee we want because they didn't make it just right today. You know, in scientific materialism, it works. It gives us results that we can see through the proper functioning of machinery and civilization. That's kind of our, um, uh, let's say, um, entrancement, if you will, or desire to, to be in this school of philosophy. Now, it's functional when it comes to describing the objective world. However, notice that it breaks down the moment it tries to describe the subjective world. So like we said last week, when science attempts to study the brain objectively, it is applying objective standards to a subjective realm of experience. And as such, it will always fall short of describing what it is that we experience when we look out consciously from these windows known as eyes. That is, science will tell you consciousness is nothing but an emergent property from matter. It's the brain, and through some kind of chemical and electrical reactions in the brain, we get this epiphenomenon called consciousness. Almost like a byproduct, you know, almost like an accident, a random event in the cosmology of things. Now, when you ask the modern neuroscientist what a thought is, there is a lack of an ability to give an answer. That is, the best they can do is say, this electrical firing, or this blip on the MRI machine, but that lacks explanatory power. How, it, how is it that a firing of a synapse adequately explains uh, this, the fact that we experience the world of poetry and beauty and, and, and uh, subjectivity? It's, for some reason, a dead end in neuroscience. So in modern neuroscience, this is called the hard problem of matter. The frontier philosophers of mind, sorry, sorry, hard problem of consciousness. The frontier philosophers of uh, mind, such as Thomas Nagel and David Chalmers, in recent years have produced very influential papers arguing this following point. The reason science is at a dead end when it comes to studying subjective experience is because it applies an objective lens to a subjective domain. This is known as a category error. You cannot study subjectivity, subjectivity through an objective lens. It simply cannot be done. And not only that, the hard problem of consciousness implies that objectivity itself is a myth. The idea that we can study something objectively is a delusion. Every objective encounter requires a subject to do the encountering. Every scientific experiment requires an experimenter to experience the data. That is to say, there cannot exist objective data without some subject uh, uh, experiencing it, categorizing it, analyzing it, and making claims as to what it means. Now, of course, uh, modern studies like the double slit experiment or uh, recent findings in quantum mechanics are challenging this observer-dominated approach of science. It's saying that the experimenter is as much a part of the experiment as the things that she is looking at. You know, so that the very act of observation comes to affect what it is that is being observed. So now the idea of an objective world is challenged. Not only that, notice you can never show the existence of anything objectively. 
You can never prove to yourself or to another person that something exists outside of your conscious experience. Do you notice this? If you said, Nish, you're saying absolute nonsense, we could all leave the room now and I can guarantee you the room will still be there. Uh, despite the fact that there are no, no people to experience the room. And let me show you, I'll put up a video camera and together we'll all walk out. And then when we come back, voila, there appears to be a room, even though there was no one in it. Ah, but you see, even your data is in consciousness. So the video camera displaying an empty room, even that is in conscious experience. So much to say that there is no such objective encounter that can be proven outside of the subjective experiencer in such a relationship. A bit of a subtle idea, but hopefully you can see the immediacy of it, how true it is in our life. Um, and maybe a game is, at the end of today's lecture, someone may attempt to prove the objective existence of something outside your own conscious experience. And we'll have some fun with that. Someone might say, oh, but there's a star out there that we haven't seen yet. Uh, now you're conflating conception with perception. The very fact that you can postulate the existence of a star means that that star is necessarily in consciousness. In fact, it would make no sense to talk of things outside of consciousness. Now, one more point. Whose consciousness? Yours. You cannot prove the existence of other consciousnesses outside of your own conscious experience. Other people exist only insofar as they exist to you. Things in the world exist only insofar as they exist to you. Can it be shown otherwise? And you might say, yes, yes, Nish, there is a world out there. There is a world of things. There is a country called Turkey, and it's out there. Some of you are Turkish. Um, there is Istanbul and Ankara, even though I can't see it. There are uh, planets and, and, and galaxies. But you see, you only believe that. You're taking it on faith. You are believing in the concept of this world that exists out there. You watch the news and you believe that there are certain oppressors in the world. Uh, you read a BuzzFeed article and you believe that there are certain planets and supernovas. But have you ever in your own experience verified that? You know? Have you in your own experience verified the existence of a world outside of the here and now? This is why in our philosophy, we make such a big deal of here and now, because it's all we have. Nothing can be shown to exist outside of here and now, except by your blind dogmatic belief in it. What do you have but experience and concepts? Our only invitation is let's abandon the concepts. Let's not take things on faith. Let's investigate here and now and see for ourselves the truth of things. That's our invitation. Can we do that? Let's try. And to do that, um, kind of turn science on its head. In other words, uh, it kind of rejects the prioritizing of matter. Now, this isn't to say that we reject the objective findings of science. Don't make that mistake. Everything science says about the objective world is awesome, is excellent. That is the domain of science. The claims that science makes about vaccines is excellent. Go and get them. The claims that science makes about the universe is excellent. You know, um, try it out for yourself. Newton's balls will all roll the way he said they will roll when you are in the train moving in uniform motion. Um, 
So notice that science works as long as you are using it in the objective world. Advaita Vedanta is okay with that. Advaita Vedanta says science is the, is the study of Maya. And for those of you Advaitins in the room, you might be interested in using that language. Science is a Mayic study. It's the study of Maya. And insofar as it's Maya studying Maya, it checks out. Relatively speaking, the truths of science are well and good. It's only when science tries to take an objective approach with regards to subjective matters that it falls apart. You see? That's the only claim here. Now, that isn't to say there aren't movements in science that are proposing we take a more subjective approach. William James from the Harvard Psychology Department, way back when, proposed this movement called introspectionism, which is the study of the mind inside out. You know, the, uh, sorry, it autocorrected. Introspectionism, the study of the mind inside out. The study of the subject as the subject. So there have been movements in recent psychology uh, to do this kind of thing. And it's the approach that we have taken in our Eastern traditions for time immemorial now. All right. So given this worldview, science says, let's study things objectively and let's study evil objectively. The only way you can study something objectively is by placing it at arm's length. In other words, you can only study things subjectively when you can maintain a separation from it. It's out there and I'm the one looking at it. So Hitler is out there. Pol Pot is out there. A Dahmer is out there, and I'm the one looking objectively at such a being. Notice the otherization already implied by such an approach. Not just that, that approach seems to be lacking when it comes to explaining evil, as we just described, with the failure of categories like psychopath, sociopath, and narcissist to adequately explain why it is a person comes to do what they do. Not just that, when we try to answer the question, what do we do about this? How do we approach a world of evil? There aren't a lot of answers because science is not in the business of handing out life advice. It can tell you, drink this water, don't drink that water. Uh, it can tell you how to maintain the body in some semblance of health, um, though health is a rather relative word if we're calling a medicated state healthy. Um, but uh, science can maintain the body and it can maintain the mechanics of civilization. But as of yet, um, there aren't a lot of people who are happy through science. Uh, at best, you can impress a Tinder date, maybe, with your uh, subtle understanding of quantum mechanics. But does it meaningfully address the deep human desire to, to know, to feel? Does it uh, uh, evoke a sense of poetry? Um, when science brings poetry, scientists become mystics. Like Newton, who was a God-intoxicated man. Like Einstein, who wrote that uh, essay, Science and Religion, and claimed that science without religion is blind. Uh, New uh, Einstein, by the way, was really into Spinoza, was who was one of the great Western non-dualists. You know, so when you study uh, uh, Galileo, who uh, was very involved in religion, when you study Mandel, you know, who was a monk, when you study actual science, you see that most science was done by mystics, by, by beings who were uh, very affiliated with spirituality. And science, for the longest time, was seen as a kind of spiritual practice, alchemia or alchemy, the goal of which was not to uh, make synthetic substance to sell at Target, the goal of which was to find human happiness. You know, now, how many of us walk out of a chemistry class actually feeling like we have the answers to life's problems? 
The world is full of unhappy scientists. And often the approach in scientific materialism is hedonism, is to just enjoy pleasures. But sooner or later, you realize that no amount of sensory stimulation can adequately scratch the itch that we feel on an existential level. Look at any tremendously rich uh, rock star type individual and you will see that the hunger is not sated no matter how many uh, benzos you can pop in the back of the limo uh, surrounded by your harem. You know, there's no amount of pleasure that can do it for you. So hedonism kind of falls short. At best, the view of materialism gives you secular humanism. Uh, I know there are these kind of these big ism words that we're throwing around. Uh, but the idea with secular humanism is that the highest thing you can aspire to is to do good to others. Notice that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The colonial project at its best was premised on good intentions. It wasn't just about going and stealing spices from brown people. It was genuinely a mission to bring hygiene, culture, and civilization to the primitive peoples of the world. The intention was good. The heart was in the right place in many of these cases. But you can see and see the ensuing harm that comes from such blind secular humanism. So a humanism that tries to see the world objectively, a materialism that tries to investigate evil objectively, and a philosophical approach to life that otherizes life as an objective study is doomed to um, fail when it comes to human happiness. All right, we'll stop there. Um, if you'd like to hear more about scientific materialism, its positive effects and drawbacks, of course, last week's lecture, that's what that was about. And uh, if you'd like to hear more about how social activism often results in fanaticism, frustration, failure, and egotism, there is also a lecture for that. It's called uh, "Spiritual uh, Activism as Spiritual Practice or Social Activism or something as Spiritual Practice. Okay, now let's move to another way of seeing the world. That is dualistic religion. So dualistic religion proposes the idea that there is a God and that God is the source of all good. Not only that, this God is omnipotent and omnibenevolent. This God is all powerful and it is all good. And necessarily, that must be the claim of dualistic religion because that's what we feel as children. So you see, dualistic religion speaks to that intuition we all had as children uh, when we looked up at the stars and we felt that out there in the expanse of the universe, there was some force of good. There was some overarching power that for whatever reason we felt had a personal interest in our lives. As children, we appeal to such a force. Uh, whether we were born in a, in a religious tradition or not, uh, before we were tyrannized by such a tradition, before the priest crammed dogma down our throat, as innocent children, we prayed to the mother. We prayed to the father. We prayed to the friend. Uh, we saw it in trees. We saw it in the sky. Um, we saw it in the darkness when we were frightened and had no one else to call upon but that source of all good. So you see, the claim that a God exists is not so far-fetched. It speaks to something we can all feel on a deep level. Perhaps for some of us, though, there's a lot of cultural sediment that separates us from that core intuition we had as a child. Uh, but usually in a time of great distress, it comes back out. So notice the profoundest atheist, like a Hawkins, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens or Dawkins type, uh, when they stub their toe, they don't say, Newton's balls! Or, ugh, Einstein, they say, oh God, or, you know, or something like that. Or there have been many instances in history where great atheist intellectuals in the time of their death, when faced with the crippling anxiety of the end of the body, scream out to God.
Except for Voltaire. That guy was principally consistent. You know, they came to him in his deathbed and they said, renounce the devil. And Voltaire said, this is no time to be making enemies. So props to Voltaire, you know, <laughs> he was consistent through and through. But if you take a materialist bowling, and this is Joseph Campbell's point, notice after they throw the ball, all their scientific materialism fades away. They start to do this. Notice, they make faces at the golf ball. They make faces at the bowling ball. They twist and contort as if they could magically, shamanically move the ball. <laughs> you see, whatever a scientist tells you they believe up here, they often don't follow through when it comes to actual action in the world. As you can see when you take your atheist friends out bowling. <laughs> and you know what? They're right. The body does keep the score. The body knows that even after throwing the ball, despite the lack of evidence in materialism, there is a connection between you and the moving ball. And there is a connection between your conscious intent and the ability of that ball to strike pins, etc. All right. So the beauty of dualistic religion is it speaks to that childhood, childish, uh, childhood intuition. Lest ye be as little children, yours is not the kingdom of heaven. You know, it speaks to that intuition. Um, however, here's the problem. If you propose the existence of an omnipotent, omnibenevolent source known as God, then the only way you can account for the existence of evil in the world, at least on an apparent level, is to say either A, that God is not omnibenevolent, or B, that God is not omnipotent. Because an omnipotent, omnibenevolent God would not allow evil to exist in the world. This is where theodicy or the problem of evil originates. It's one of the earliest objections to dualistic religion. It's one of the first arguments that an atheist uses to take down the concept of a personal God with form or the Ishta Devata. You know, so Euripides, as early as 300 BCE, Greece was already formulating this problem of evil. He, and, and this was a polytheistic tradition, right? He would say, um, all these various gods, if they were really good, um, they would not allow for such horror to happen. You know, Sparta just massacred Athens. How would a god be okay with that? Um, and someone brought up the quote last week. I forget, it was a Holocaust survivor whose name eludes me now, who said, if such a god exists, that god must personally apologize to me for the Holocaust. Does someone remember who that is? Maybe you can... Yeah, there we go. Thank you, Anthony. Anthony was also the one who suggested it last week. Ali Weissel, yes. So here we have a problem. Either the God is not omnipotent or the God is not omnibenevolent. But not both. You know, so what will the theologians say? What will dualistic religions reply when confronted with the problem of evil? Um, there are generally three replies. Uh, we're not... Re uh, you know, today... Actually, no, today we're going to go... Last week, we didn't really go into depth. Today, we're going to do, going into depth. So the first reply is to say, yes, God is omnipotent and God is also omnibenevolent, but God also recognizes the necessary nature of evil. God recognizes that a certain level of disease and pain is necessary so that a second order good can inhere in God's creation. The second order good being benevolence. So benevolence or service is any action to reduce uh, the net impacts of disease, death, environmental destruction. Now, there couldn't be service, there couldn't be benevolence, or there couldn't be kindness if there wasn't the first order evil of pain, disease, uh, environmental destruction. So you see, that's the first approach that dualistic religion proposes. It says, um, 
God needed evil. Then the question becomes, why so much of it? You know, <laughs> why couldn't God be content to make just a little evil? I mean, all we needed was just a little bit of not red to make sense of the color red. We just need a little bit of cruelty to justify kindness. Why do there have to be so much cruelty? And not just that, um, the existence of first order evils creates second order goods, but it also creates second order evils. You see, so while you have benevolent saints, you have malevolent troublemakers who exacerbate the amount of pain, destruction and disease in the world. So to say that first order evils necessitate, uh, sorry, to say that second order goods require first order evil falls into a logical error because all second order goods have second order evils. And then you might say, okay, now there's a third order good. And then you would say there's a third order evil. And you can see how you're locked in an infinite regress, which in philosophy is like a checkmate. You know, it's like, sorry, theologians, your idea of necessary evil did not work. You know, it didn't work. Now what will you do? Your move. So the response from the theologian is as follows. Okay, good point, Mr. Atheist. But consider this, the ultimate good is free will. God wanted to guarantee the maximum amount of free will and therefore some wiggle room is created for evil. So it's not God's fault. God is omnipotent. God is omnibenevolent. It's just the creations of God, the creatures endowed with free will who go about and cause intense suffering and harm for others. It's not on God. God's hands are clean. She's like, I ain't got nothing to do with this. You children sort it out. You see, <laughs> so a theologian says in order to maintain the ultimate good of free will, therefore, some evil, actually a lot of evil must be permitted. Three problems with this, the atheist says. One, then this God is not omnipotent. You know, if people can do as they please without God's intervention, if God is unable to intervene when it comes to free will, then how can this God be omnipotent? But let's guarantee, let's, let's, let's assume, not concede, but let's assume that, uh, the game of God is free will and God can but won't intercede in free will. Then the second question is, I know I'm moving through this rather quickly because I want to get to Advaita, uh, but do pause and uh, do pause me and slow me down if any one of these, these ideas aren't coming through, um, clearly. So Amanda says, I have a difficult time. Uh, someone who created the concept of what they want. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, Amanda. <laughs> Arnox says, Voltaire is my spiritual husband. <laughs> Yes, beautiful. Okay, the chats are moving rather quickly. <laughs> so I'll try my best to keep up. But uh, the second response is, let's assume God is omnipotent. Let's just assume she can but won't intervene in free will. Now what? Now the atheist says, even if that were to be the case, why couldn't God simply have created agents who are predisposed to good with the free will to do what they want? You see, so that way God could guarantee free will, but could also guarantee that the free agents will act uh, w beneficently. Why couldn't God create beings who are predisposed to good and then let them free in a universe of free will? That would greatly minimize the suffering, right? Why not that? You know, and the response from the theologian might be, well, is that really free will? If, if God got into your brain and programmed how you saw the world and determined that you would see it in a kindly and beneficent way, do you still have free will? 
I mean, is free will only in terms of action or is, is it also the freedom to create your own character, to define your own sense of meaning, to see the world in your own unique way? Is that not the fullest sense of free will? You know, that's what the theologian would say to the atheist with regards to creating people who are predisposed to good. Now, the third response might be from the atheist. All right. Uh, I agree with that. Um, but why free will? You know, why is free will so important? Let's say that God can but won't interfere with free will. So I'll give you omnipotence. I'll give you omnibenevolence. Let's say that God cannot tinker with predisposition because that would violate the uh, concept of free will. Fine, I'll give you that. But why free will? You know, the atheist will finally ask that question. Why is free will the ultimate standard for God's creation? You see, this is the ultimate question in the end. And the answer varies from religion to religion. I'm just going to give you Catholicism's answer, or at least a Christian mysticism's answer. The answer is this. God is not a being insofar as it's a person with ideas and motives. It's simply a principle. It's an absolute monad or a henad, they called it in the early Christian uh, philosophical traditions. Now, the first act of creation was to create a group of beings, uh, perhaps called angels or the shining ones, whose only joy it was to contemplate God. So these beings kind of revolved around God um, and they just contemplated God. That was all that they wanted to do. And that was all that gave them meaning in life. And then something happened. It wasn't God's fault, but some of those beings decided to move away from God. It's not clear why. So in the writings of Saint Anselm, a great uh, Catholic philosopher, uh, and his book, The Fall of the Devil, tries to ask the question, why is it that Lucy fell away from God? You know, what compelled Lucy to give God the finger and stomp away into the abyss? You know, um, and Saint Anselm just says, Lucifer and his cohort were, uh, wished for that which ought not be wished for. They called it the malum, which is just a catch-all Latin phrase for that which you ought not want. <laughs> Maybe it was to be like God. Maybe it was to possess beauty. I don't know what it is. Uh, all that you need for Christian mystical literature is this point. Because of that malum, there was a fall event. All these cohorts of Lucifer fell away from God. Now, Lucifer managed to convince some angels to come with him. And as such, they all fell. And Mikael managed to convince other angels to stay with him. And a battle ensued. There were the forces of evil, Lucifer and his gang. And then there were the forces of good, Mikael and his cohort. And in between those two extremes, there was a tremendous range of souls. Some souls, while not being wholly in the cohort of Lucifer, were closer to that end of the spectrum. Other beings, while not being wholly good and devout, were still closer to Mikael. Now, God says, I need to do something about this. So God creates the world out of grace as a training ground to help redeem souls. You see, so the idea is the world is a bridge. Quickly transcend it. The world is here for the redemption and salvation of various souls who have fallen in between this great cosmic battle.
Now, where did Christianity get this idea? Historically speaking, it obviously came from Zoroastrianism. So Zoroastrianism is perhaps the world's first dualistic religion. It's a close cousin of the Vedic culture, since Persia and India developed, you know, somewhat uh, next to each other. Now, in Persian mysticism or Persian Zoroastrian uh, belief, there is one penultimate force of good. Its name is Ahura Mazda, which means the Lord of Wisdom or the Lord of Light, uh, the being of ultimate beneficence and good. This is God. Ahura Mazda is opposed by his opposite, Aingra Manyu, which in the, uh, the, the Farsi or actually the Avastan means bad spirit. So Aingra Manyu just means the all-purpose evil bad guy, Darth Vader incarnate, you know. Um, Aingra Manyu was perhaps called Ahriman, the adversary. Yes, Arnak or bad mind, a bad intelligence. So it just so happens that in the beginning of time, there are these two dualistically opposed forces. Ahura Mazda, standing for the good guys, and Ahriman, standing for the bad guys. Now, in the beginning, according to the sage Zoroaster from the Zoroastrian tradition, uh, which was formulated around 1400 BCE, so about 1500 years before the Christ and before Christianity, and even before some of the Judaic ideas of um uh, duality. So in Zoroaster's worldview, Ahura Mazda squared off against Aingra Manyu. Ahura Mazda first tried to make peace. So he put his arm out and wanted a handshake. Aingra Manyu slapped the hand away, saw it as a sign of weakness and declared war. Ahura Mazda says, if war it is, so be it. And Ahura Mazda created this world. So God is creating this. Satan didn't create the world. God created the world. Ahura Mazda creates this world as a, a football arena, as a soccer match, or as a table upon which him and Ahriman could arm wrestle. Have you gone on Google Images and seen that picture of like Jesus arm wrestling the devil? <laughs> it's like that. That's a Zoroastrian idea. This world is the table upon which God and Satan wrestle. So Ahriman um, comes into the world and in the language of Zoroaster, infects the world with his evil. According to Zoroaster, not even the point of a needle was freed from the noxious substance of Ahriman. So Ahriman went to town. You know, in the beginning, the world was beautiful. There was perpetual day. However, Ahriman came in and brought in night. He brought in chaos. He brought in all the elements in life we consider less than savory. Essentially, he brought in evil, disease, despair, suffering, death, darkness. All of that was the domain of Ahriman. He so infected and pervaded the world with evil um, that he felt quite satisfied. He was like, all right, I did it. Time to go back to heaven. So as he was moving up out of the world, having thus conquered it, he found himself trapped in it. You know, Ahura Mazda got the last laugh. Ahura Mazda created a crystalline sky, otherwise known as the Empyrean to the Greek philosophers like Aristotle. The realm of fixed stars. And Ahriman couldn't get out. He got trapped, you see. <laughs> So now what is he going to do? Now he threshes about the world in anger. Do you see how this idea is echoed by Thomas Milton's poem, Paradise Lost? You can see how this idea is echoed by some of the Qumran war scrolls describing the angst uh, of Lucifer and his cohort trapped in the abyss. You can see it manifest in that statue in Paris. You know, outside the Notre Dame, there is a, a statue of Saint Michel um, standing on the serpent. 
It's a beautiful statue. He's got his spear, and he's wreathed in fire, and he's got his foot on the snake. You can see how the ideas of Judaic, Christian, and Islamic duality come from this initial Zoroastrian conception of good and evil. Now, it makes sense, right? If you're going to propose that good exists in the world, you must also propose that its opposite exists in the world. Because such is our experience. Apparently, evil exists. It can't be God's fault, right? So it must be God's enemy, Satan. It's got to be the devil. That is the view of dualistic religion. Now, there are a few problems with this view, mainly twofold. One, if a devil exists, then God cannot be all-powerful. God's power is checked by Satan. And, and really, in the Zoroastrian scheme, Ahura Mazda does seem to get the upper hand, uh, but there is still a kind of limit to what Ahura Mazda is able to do, whether by choice or by design, who knows? Metaphysically, Ahriman can kind of hold his own, as you can see in the realm of the Demiurge. Someone cues some Black Sabbath, right? Lord of this world from the Masters of Reality record. Um, that, I think, best describes what we're talking about with the Demiurge and, 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 and Satan. So the first problem is if you propose the existence of Satan, you have harmed God's omnipotence. And if God created Satan, as indeed the Christian tradition says God did, then the question becomes, why did God create such a being? such a being that would do this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Doesn't that make God as culpable the same way a Nazi officer would be culpable for what his uh, henchmen do, you know? Um, command responsibility, right? Um, so what do you do about this? Now, this is the problem. If the second problem is, is more acute, if you propose the existence of a devil, you have hereby renounced all your responsibility for evil. You have renounced your own participation in the evils of the world. The devil made me do it. <laughs> you see, you have outsourced all of your darkness to some being that conveniently is responsible for putting those thoughts in your head. So it's not your fault that you are cussing at people who cut you off in traffic. It's not your fault that you stabbed your husband after finding him in bed with another man from his yoga studio. It's not your fault that you snapped at your child who was only trying to play with you. No, it's the devil's fault. You see, someone prodded you and therefore you never have to take responsibility for any evil. And not just that, you can use the word devil to justify evils in the world. Because if such a thing as the devil exists, then certainly it's worth fighting, right? <laughs> so as long as there are two things, the idea of a war is implied. The idea of rallying against the other, against Satan. And so it's very easy to see how um, Rome was able to leverage this idea to send Templars all around the world, desecrating cities, eventually even sacking the other half of Rome, who were apparently less Christian. You can see why Roman Catholics were more than happy to uh, put their brother Cathars to the fire in southern France. You can see why inquisitions happen throughout history. You can see how nationalism promotes this kind of violence, all because of the existence of a devil. All because we're able to point a finger and say, that's the work of the enemy, let's go kill them. In the name of the good, let's go kill them. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that beautiful line from Game of Thrones, as Tyrion Lannister says, there are brave men knocking at your door, let's go kill them. <laughs> 
the poignancy of that, you see. Now, this is the danger of proposing the existence of the devil. One, on a personal level, it absolves you of any personal responsibility to become better. Uh, secondly, on a cultural level, it allows you to place evildoers on a pedestal, saying that they are categorically different from you, which has two effects. One, it removes your ability to self-reflect on your own innate evil. You're not able to reflect on whether or not you might have done the same if you were put in a similar situation. How many of us can actually say with certainty that we would not have been swept up in the cultural hysteria of Nazi Germany? But secondly, it denies the aggressor an opportunity to see a counter-narrative. Once we decide someone is evil, and once we decide that they are monsters, we no longer want to engage with them. We demonize them. We send hate their way, thereby justifying their alienation from us, thereby increasing the vitriol they probably feel for humanity, thereby reifying the very alienation that causes acts of evil from them. However, if we were but to see them as equals, as someone who we love, um, they might have a valuable ability to see a counter-narrative. You know, hate might be dissolved by love, but never by hate. If hate could be fought by hate, let us explain the past uh, 9,000 years or so of history. <laughs> How many crusades have we gone on in the name of vanquishing evil? How much killing do we have to do in the name of ending killing? So you see, that's the problem with the dualistic religion's conception of God as opposed by evil. So what do we do about this? Uh, Hinduism has a nice solution. Collapse the two. Instead of saying God and Satan are fighting one another, say God is one thing, there are two aspects to that God. On one hand, that God is nice and beneficent. On the other hand, that God will wreck your shit. Because why should such a God conform to your measly human conceptions of good and evil? You see, one of the biggest failings of dualistic religion is cramming God into the narrow confines of human morality, which is to say, God must meet your expectations of good. God must act in a way that is pleasing to you. You only want a convenient God that shows up in her Sunday best. You have no time for a God that shows up doused in blood, soaked in oil, howling, bearing weapons aloft, wearing a necklace of skulls, and bringing disease and death in the same breath as goodness, auspiciousness, and beauty. <laughs> Viktor Frankl was able to see such a God. Right? In Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl argues that even in the most debased conditions of human life, there was beauty, poetry, and meaning. Viktor Frankl was able to meaningfully live at Auschwitz and later at Dachau. He was able to find great joy in a concentration camp. And that was his ability to see God even in that. So in Hinduism, we say... It's not right to propose that there's such a thing as a Satan. So you see, Hinduism kind of gets rid of omnibenevolence to maintain omnipotence. Let's take power over this like wussy goodness, you know? And so we proposed Kali as an image for God appearing as suffering. Now, Islam also has a beautiful way of dealing with this problem. In the Islamic tradition, God is shown as both merciful and stringent. That is, God... Um, dispenses mercy, but another way that God dispenses mercy is through giving you the shaft. Because all the suffering that you experience in your life is preparing you for greater experiences of joy. In other words, all the suffering that you experience shows you where you're still getting stuck. It shows you where you're still attached. If you feel great pain 
and that pain appears to you as suffering, you're attached to your body. And so you will continuously feel pain until you give up this idea that you are this limited body. If you feel like you're being blamed by the people around you, if you feel like you've been shamed or your name has been dragged through the mud, that suffering is there to show you that you are too attached to your limited sense of self. Ultimately, it's that pain that causes you to break on through to the other side. So it's only pain in the body and it's only pain in the mind that can show you that you are unlimited, that you are not the body and the mind, that you are all bodies and all minds, that you are simply pure consciousness. You are at your very nature bliss. So in order to prepare you for that, as the Christ, peace and blessings before him, uh, upon him, most beautifully says, the wheat must be threshed. <laughs> You know, you must be shaken up in order to be prepared for a higher life, a greater life. So that's the way that the great non-dualist Christ, the great non-dual Islamic tradition known as Sufism, and the non-dual Hindu tradition such as Kali worship propose God as not dual, not Satan versus God, but God as one being with two aspects, both as holy as the other. So the invitation of Hindu duality, Islamic duality, and uh, ultimately Christian mystical duality is, can you see God in the bullshit too? You know, <laughs> can you look Hitler in the eye and see as much God there as you can see in the eyes of Mother Teresa? You see, why would we want to do such a thing? Well, theologically, it solves the problem of the problem of evil. Theologically, it says God does not need to be omnibenevolent. It's enough that God is omnipotent. It's you that needs to adjust your idea of benevolence, you see? So it solves the problem theologically. Secondly, um, it presents tremendous responsibility for your own actions. It says that such a God is not going to conform to you. Uh, you must meet its standards. So if you'd like to see less suffering in your life, you do have to put in the time and effort to cultivate a life that uh, presents less suffering to you. You know, and that is to say you must relinquish your idea of being this body and being this mind, which is ultimately the great non-dual project, you see. And that's on you. Insofar as you cannot do that, there is much suffering still in store, and ultimately that suffering is for your own good. And the third thing to say here is um, the solution is tremendously productive in your interactions with so-called wrongdoers. If you are able to see all these so-called monsters as God herself, you are able to bring tremendous love to them. Not in the way that you excuse their actions, not in the way that you dress them up to be better than they are. No, you see their evil without any delusion whatsoever. You recognize that you are looking at someone who has perpetuated tremendous harm in the world. And yet, you don't hate them. And yet, you don't feel like killing them or stoning them. Jesus would not have it. You know, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. Who amongst us is qualified to cast any stones at any people? Who amongst us can honestly say that if our life trajectories had been the same as Hitler or Pol Pot, we might not ourselves be responsible for the very same things they were responsible for? Don't we do tremendous amounts of quote-unquote evil all day? We ignore our children. We don't water the plants when we should. <laughs> you know, uh, when our beloved is talking to us, we're texting or watching the news. We're not giving them our attention. We don't sacrifice ourselves for others. You know, we don't pay it forward. And when we realize this, suddenly we're confronted with the horror of our own darkness.
you know? And that's the beauty of being able to look a monster in the eye and recognize your common humanity. Not easy, huh? Because it forces you to take a hard look at yourself. Now, why don't you want to take this look? Because you're afraid of what it might reveal about you. How can you live knowing you too could be a monster? You know, that they weren't under your bed. They weren't in the history book. They were in your head, these monsters. How would you live with yourself knowing you were capable of such things? Now, to that, we have another answer. If you believe in evil, you will hate yourself because you will start to see your own evil. If you believe in evil, you will disempower yourself. You will feel guilt. And in guilt comes self-loathing. And in self-loathing comes even more evil. See, the more you hate yourself, the worse you will feel. And the worse you feel, the more times you're going to snap during the day. The worse you feel, the less you're going to be able to serve those who depend on you. <laughs> there is nothing worse for your morality than feeling bad. And there is nothing worse for your morality than a philosophical system that makes you feel bad. Fie onto all of those that say you are born in sin. How much sin must they themselves be living in to project that onto you? <laughs> so, if you believe in evil, you will feel guilt. Because inevitably you must recognize your own evil. And if you have not recognized your own evil, it is only because you are conveniently outsourcing it to the devil, or more commonly, the devil's incarnation, such as Hitler, Pol Pot, what have you. <laughs> so now what to do? How do we solve this problem? Now we come to Sankhya, we come to Buddhism, and we come to Advaita, which humbly I'd like to suggest is advanced spirituality, uh, which is spirituality that is finally finished with all this moping and whining and guilt. It's a philosophy that says, get over it, let's move forward. And it proposes the following thing. You must, first and foremost in your life, solve your, the riddle of life for yourself. You cannot help others if you yourself are unhappy. Unhappy people cannot make unhappy people happy. <laughs> you cannot hand out what you yourself do not have. If the masses come to you with cupped palms and you have not water, how will you slake their thirst? You see, how can you give advice to anybody while you yourself are not perfect? Does 500 hours of teacher training really qualify you to present others with sage advice as to how they should or should not live their lives? <laughs> as such, if you truly intend to do good in the world, you must make your own liberation your priority. Now we're coming to the language of the moksha traditions of the East, which is to say the purpose of religion is not really morality. No, religion is not really concerned with morality. The purpose of religion is the spiritual emancipation of the person from all disempowering narratives that perpetuate separation. Religion is the act of moving from separation to unity, from moving from fear to love, from moving from evil to good. And the only way you're going to make that movement is if you surrender your obsession with evil, fear, and uh, darkness. You see, you can't make it to good if all you're thinking about is evil. <laughs> you can't get to love if your religious vernacular is steeped in fear. You're not going to become strong marinating your minds in thoughts of weakness. You know? So these are philosophies that say to you, dispense like a poison all those philosophies that make you feel weak that make you feel guilty. Crush them out like an insect, you know? These are philosophies for the strong. And what we want 
is those who are willing to get on with it, you know, to move on with their lives. And so we say to such people, first and foremost, relinquish your guilt. Understand that the evil that you caused was simply a product of acting out unconscious, repetitive behaviors that you inherited from your society and from your upbringing. It's not your fault. You are not an agent. There's not really that much free will in our world. You know, when you go to the grocery store and you freely choose Kashi Golin chocolate cereal, it's my favorite, did you really choose it? You know, or did advertising cause you to reach the handout? What choices are really your choices? Are you free to, de to do anything more than to be a slave to your impulses? That's what these philosophies say to us. You know, your presupposed freedom is not really freedom. Your presupposed agency is not really agency. So chillax. It's not your fault that you massacred a nation. Sorry, it's not your fault. You were merely acting out an unconscious repetitive pattern. You were acting from a limited view of the world. So enough with all this moralizing. You know, stop dwelling on your past wrongs and let's get better together. <laughs> so you see, the philosophies of Sankhya and Buddhism are less interested in moralizing. They're more interested in action. You know, they're more interested in uh, practice. You know, so if you ask too many questions about free will, about the ontological role of evil, about the uh, existence of the devil, they will say you are merely procrastinating the work. You are merely intellectually masturbating. Uh, either you're looking for a convenient excuse to not practice. You're looking for a savior to practice for you. In any case, you yourself are not practicing. You're not sitting down on your mat to meditate, you know, um, and we will not have that. As such, these philosophies say uh, categorically in one fell swoop, enough with your guilt, enough with your moralizing. Finish with it here and now, and let's get serious about the actual development of your spiritual project. So to describe this, let's take the story of uh, Milarepa. Kaz will enjoy this. We have a, a tantric Buddhist in the room. This is a story from the... Sorry, Kaz, what did you say? Oh, I said thank you. <laughs> This is a story from the Tantric Buddhist uh, tradition. Now, the story is as follows. Milarepa is a man with a lot of anger. You know, he, he has a lot of grudges against members of his family. Um, you know, these Indian stories tend to be long-winded and these lectures are long enough as it is. So let's not get into why it is Milarepa was angry. Take my word for it. He was angry. Uh, and he was so angry that it motivated him to practice spirituality to acquire certain powers. We call this Siddhis. You see, say what you will about the man, but Mao had tremendous charisma. Hitler had tremendous power over masses. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer had tremendous intellectual gifts to be able to plan the way that he planned. A lot of these evil people are very powerful personalities. They're very charming um, and they're very driven, you know, like Mao. Uh, and his, his march across China is the example of yogic discipline par excellence. <laughs> you know, Hitler was a vegetarian, a man of tremendous self-control. Um, in fact, the true evil in the world is not committed in crimes of passion. It's a premeditated act of powerful individuals. Similarly, Milarepa acquired power through yogic practice, through meditation, through austerity, he learned to control his mind and his body to such a degree that he was able to cast spells. At the flick of his wrist, 
he could summon a storm of rocks down onto a village. And that's just what he did. He went to a family member's wedding and drunk with rage, he used his newfound yogic abilities, his siddhis, to wreck some shit. You know, he was literally raining on the parade. And he would do this. He would go around the world and use his magic to procure women and wealth and conquer enemies. And he was so drunk with his power until one day he was confronted with the reality of his evil. As Fabricio and I were discussing last week, every evildoer, sooner or later, must confront the reality of their evil because they cannot find the fulfillment they're looking for through the perpetuation of evil. You see, Milarepa destroyed the wedding because he thought it would make him happy. It didn't, you know. You can serve your revenge as chilled as you'd like. Uh, that cocktail is not going to slake your thirst. Now, it's not just that. After Milarepa destroyed the wedding, in the same way as Anakin Skywalker, confused that nothing is making him happy, goes on to do even more evil shit, you know, looking for that elusive sense of happiness. Eventually, everybody realizes, make no mistake, everybody in the journey of their soul, from incarnation to incarnation, don't get me started on reincarnation, there's a separate lecture for that, but everybody at some point or other, whether in this life or a next or 10 lives down the line, will ultimately come to this conclusion. No amount of money, no amount of power can ever satisfy you. And therefore, you must confront your own evil in trying to accrue money and power ad infinitum. You must uh, face your own lust and greed. So this happened to Milarepa, you know? He was like, God, I'm an asshole. Um, and I not only have not acquired happiness, but I'm also deeply, deeply miserable. You know, I, I feel a resentment. I feel a self-hatred, a self-loathing. What do I do? So naturally, you throw yourself at the feet of one who is happy, one who is realized, a spiritual master, one who feels, as St. Paul so beautifully said, the peace that passeth all understanding in all situations of, of life. And you throw yourself at the feet of such a being and you say, humbly, I don't know what the fuck is going on. I've tried everything. I've tried money. I've tried wealth. I've tried power. And none of it... <laughs> I said money. <laughs> I've tried wealth. I've tried power. I've tried sensual gratification. And none of it is making me happy. You know how to be happy. God damn it, teach me. For the sake of my soul, teach me. And I will do anything if you can just teach me how to be happy. Please make no mistake. Unless you are willing to surrender yourself with such devotion to the Guru, the Guru will not appear in your life. Because until you're ready to finish with your own wealth, power, and sensual gratification adventure, um, the Guru can't really help you. The Guru can only appear as suffering. Insofar as you're interested in material things, in worldliness, your teacher has to be suffering, as it was the case for Milarepa. So having suffered much in his life, he was finally ready to surrender to the teacher. So he came to Marpa. Marpa was a great Tibetan Buddhist master. Yes, and Kaz says, the more desperate, the better. Better. We call this vairagya, divine dispassion, divine renunciation for the world. Litost, as they say in the Czech language. You know, the anguish that a dog feels when it loses its mate. Do you know this word, litost? There is no English word that can accurately translate the Czech word litost. Similarly, there is no English word that can convey to you what I mean when I say viraha, when I say vairagya. This is the tremendous nausea that one feels when the world has been proven to you, life after life, to be not enough. The Germans have a nice word, Weltschmerz. 
<laughs> you know, world weariness, Weltschmerz. It's another good. I spelt it horrifically. <laughs> but I'm sure you'll know how to find that word. So, litost, viraha, Weltschmerz, divine dispassion, vairagya. These are all words. See the frog. He's feeling it. <laughs> Can you hear him? It's a frog. Now, these are all words that describe how Milarepa felt when he prostrated himself before Marpa. Marpa said to him, first and foremost, forget your past life. You're going to take a new name. You're not going to dwell on all the things you did before. You're simply going to get to work. And what's your work? Build me a tower. <laughs> so Milarepa went, and stone after stone, he laid the brick and he built the tower. Yes, Heidi, existential dread. <laughs> Can you hear it? The sound of the abyss. The frog's name is Azazel, by the way. There are two frogs. One is Azazel and Enoch. <laughs> God, thou seest what Azazel has done. <laughs> He has gone on to men and mated with the daughters of men and created giants. Okay, okay, anyway, we're getting carried away. Okay, so Marpa tells Milarepa to build this tower. And as Milarepa starts to build it, Marpa destroys it. Every time Milarepa gets close to building the tower, Marpa destroys it. And this goes on for years and years and years. You see, Marpa was trying to solve Milarepa's guilt through karma yoga, through action in the world. You cannot get over your guilt by sitting on it, by thinking about it, by ruminating. You must go out and do something. So in the case of Milarepa and in the case of uh, Shams of Tabriz from the Sufi tradition, they built houses. You know, with sweat and tears and effort, they toiled and toiled. And that's how they worked out their karma. You see, in effect, Marpa gave Milarepa a prison sentence. And when he finished his prison sentence, he was no longer deemed guilty. Do you not see how these are our ideals of law? We don't call someone a monster after they've served their sentence. We say their debt to society has been paid. Similarly, on a metaphysical level, your debt to creation has been paid through your karma. And a guru's role is to speed up that karma. So make no mistake, if you have done evil in your life, you will pay for it. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it's going to be. But it doesn't have to be suffering. Find a guru and the guru will teach you how to endure that which cannot be cured and how to avoid that which need not be endured. That's what Marpa did for Milarepa. So Milarepa um, built and built and built and finally, years and years into that effort, Marpa finally started to teach him spirituality. You see, Milarepa couldn't learn spirituality until he got over his guilt. He couldn't start uh, the spiritual life unless there was some level of peace uh, in his heart. Shankaracharya opens Atma Bodha with the following line, I am teaching non-duality now to those who are peaceful at heart, free from craving, and intensely desirous of liberation. Non-duality will not appeal to you as a philosophy unless you already come to us happy. If you are not yet content with life, you must go to the Tony Robbins. <laughs> you must go to the Napoleon Hill. You might go to the Kama Sutra. <laughs> you know, you might go to other things. But when you come here, it's because you've realized that those other things don't help you. From a base level of contentment, now we can go into the deeper, deeper, subtler aspects of life. Then Milarepa, having been purified, was finally ready to learn, and Marpa eventually condescended to teach him, and just like that, he was liberated. <laughs>
So you see, in these Eastern traditions of Buddhism, Sankhya, and Yoga, emphasis is on action, not on moralizing. In fact, abandon all morals and continue meditating. In fact, don't even um, worry about the self. It will fall away. Just show up on the mat. Day in and day out, do your pranayam, do your asana, do your uh, vipassana meditation. You know, whatever tradition you belong to, fast on your fast days. Uh, bathe when it's time to bathe. Pray five times a day in the Islamic tradition. Do what it is that the tradition prescribes that you do and give it a few years and this guilt will be cleaned away by the fire and flood of spiritual practice. You see. Okay, now we're going to get to the main course. And in the final 30 minutes, uh, I want to give you the non-dual uh, approach to suffering. So we've covered a lot, you know, we've looked at scientific materialism, we've spent a lot of time with the dualistic religion, necessarily with such a talk, since theodicy is indeed a dualistic religion, theology, conversation. Now we've looked at Sankhya and Yoga and the penchant of Eastern traditions to do away with moralizing. Let's turn to Advaita Vedanta. Let's see what Advaita Vedanta does it with regards to evil. First and foremost, Advaita means not to. Advaita. Dvaita means to. Advaita is the philosophy of not to. So let's take a moment here to ask ourselves, why didn't we just call it Ekam Sat Vedanta? <laughs> you know, why didn't we just call it oneness philosophy? All is one, man, as every hippie in Coachella is telling you while they're on acid. Why didn't we just call it that? The philosophy of one. Now, the reason we don't want to call it that is because obviously that's not how you experience the world. Obviously, on the level of appearance, there are many things. There's duality. How can someone tell you only one thing exists when clearly you experience many things? How can I tell you that only God exists and you are that God when in fact you feel yourself to be but one person in a society of many persons? Um, how can I tell you that you are the same person as Hitler as you are the same person as Mother Teresa if you feel yourself to be on this side of history and not on that one? So necessarily, Advaita Vedanta must start from where we are. It starts from our perception of duality and it works from there to guide you into non-duality. And it does this through a few clever arguments utilizing our own experience of the here and now. So Advaita is not oneness philosophy, it's not two philosophy. And remember, an Advaitin is philosophically consistent on all levels of being. An Advaitin cannot admit the existence of fear because then there would be an opposition to love. An Advaitin cannot admit the existence of evil because then there would be an opposition to good. You see? We might do some tantric magic and say, yes, fear and love are both aspects of one thing and that's eventually what we will do. So here's what Advaita says. Did Hitler act out of evil? Did he do what he did because of evil? Or was it not out of misguided love? Can anybody act on anything other than love? You know, now really chew on this. Hitler loved his nation. He was a, a real patriotic man. I mean, the guy marched on Berlin with a handgun, having been inspired by Mussolini's takeover of Rome, this courageous lion took a handgun and ran into Berlin. Clearly, he's not lacking in courage and love and self-sacrifice. He loved his nation. He loved his nation so much that he was willing to commit horrific atrocities onto anyone he considered not his nation. 
You see, not only that, he loved his occult so much that he was willing to commit horrific atrocities upon anybody who was not of that same cult. Now, when a person harms another, it's usually because they love their body so much. So in the case of a sociopath or a psychopath or a narcissist, even that word narcissism implies self-love. It's such an obsession and attachment with the self that it necessitates negligence or obliviousness of the others. Can it be anything but love that promotes the psychopath to be the way that they are? It's love for the body, love for themselves, and all the evils of the world come from the love of the body. Now, if you can overcome the love of the body uh, with the love of the tribe or the family, uh, that's a good thing. You know, you become a little less self-centered and a little more, let's say, um, let's say, uh, sacrificial. You're willing to sacrifice yourself for your family, but you're happy to kill anybody who is not your family. So do you see, love for your family causes you to do evil to those who are not your family in the name of defending your family. You know, every crime boss that was tried sees themselves like, uh, I think it was Al Capone who said, um, I don't understand why I'm being charged. I've only ever been a help to society. I've only ever boosted the economy and given people jobs. Nobody is the villain in their own story. Everybody is the good guy. Do you see? We are all the heroes of our own personal narratives. You act out of tremendous nobility and heroism, as misguided as it sometimes is. <laughs> Hence the colonial uh, escapade. Yes, Amanda talks about the godfather. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, Amanda. He loved his life, except he was dark-haired and dark-eyed, which is so funny. Yeah, and so he probably, you know, repressed homosexuality, maybe. Who knows? We can say what we want, but Advaita wants to say this. Whatever explanation you give, it's one of love. Evil people act out of love. However, the action is from a limited love. It's a love for the body that causes you to do evil to every other body. It's a love for the tribe, uh, which is better, but it causes you to do evil unto other tribes. It's a love for the nation, which is even better. It's more inclusive. You're more likely to love strangers as long as they belong to your nation state. But it's that same love for your country that allows you to go to war with other countries and commit tremendous atrocities. Now, love for the globe would be ideal, but then when the aliens come, you'd be happy to oppress them. You see, every time you do evil, it's out of love for something else. In the name of that love, you commit evil. In the name of love for God, you're willing to kill the heathens, the witches, the uh, kafirs, you know? Don't you see how we can only act out of love? That is to say, the motivation that moves Hitler is the same motivation that moves Mother Teresa, is the same motivation that moves you to the fridge to get a sandwich. Many of you will feel deeply uncomfortable by such a statement because what I'm asking of you is very, very big ask. I'm saying, see your shared humanity, not just in Hitler, but also in Mother Teresa, which might be harder for you to do, right? Some of you are better off identifying with monsters, but you can't identify with saints. But here we are telling you, you are that saint. You and Mother Teresa are not different in motive. You and Hitler are not different in motive. You are only different in knowledge. You see, Hitler was contracted in his love. He acted out of love, but necessarily that love was misdirected, caused a lot of evil for others, but also for himself. He ended his life a tremendously desperate man with a handgun in his mouth, alone in some bunker, having perhaps killed his wife, children, and beloved dog. 
you know? Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate, Anakin, leads to suffering. <laughs> right, Master Yoda? Darth Vader did not throw uh, Mace Windu. Sorry. <laughs> he did not chop off Samuel L. Jackson's hand out of hate for Samuel L. Jackson. He did not hate the Jedi. He loved Padme. He loved his wife. He loved his child. Anakin did not massacre the sand people like animals. I slaughtered them like animals, you know? He didn't do that out of hate for them. He couldn't care less for them. He killed them because they had his mother. It was out of love that Darth Vader became Darth Vader. And it was out of love that Darth Vader was redeemed. Okay, we made our Star Wars reference. I'm happy. You can die in peace now. <laughs> We're yet to make a Lord of the Rings and, and rock and roll reference. So <laughs> in the final few minutes, let's hope we can do that. Okay, so Anakin, which of course Darth Vader is modeled after Hitler. Hitler, Pol Pot. Remember Pol Pot went to Europe to study. Remember this. He was not an imbecile. He was an educated man of the uh, 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 political elite who went to France and did his degree in some French university and studied with European scholars and rubbed shoulders with some of the great humanists and artists of his time. Yet the fella still came back to Cambodia and killed everybody who wore glasses. Do you think he was, like, dumb? No, he was a smart guy. Uh, I made a Doors reference. Yes, okay, we did. Break on through to the other side. He was not a dumb guy, you know. He could reason. He read the same books of on morality that you read. He read Mill's Harm Principle. Uh, sorry, On Liberty. He read Kant. Uh, he, he knew all of that stuff. Yet he was still willing to do tremendous evil because he had great love for his Marxist ideal. You see. Um, so that's the first claim. Hitler acted out of love. Mother Teresa acted out of love. So she had such love for the entirety of humanity that she was so happy to sacrifice her body. You think Mother Teresa had to say, uh, you know, when she heard the call to go to Calcutta, it wasn't like she was like, let me sleep on this, okay? Let me think about it. I, I have a lot of opportunities here back home. I don't know if I want to go take that post in Calcutta. No, for her, it was like, yeah, Lord, not my will, but thy will. Where you take my body, there I will go. And I will do good works in your name um, regardless of what happens to me, what happens to my family. Give me 10 such men, uh, Vivekananda spoke in that language, but give me send 10 such people and I will change the world. 10 such people is all we need. 10 people who are willing to sacrifice body, family, nation, everything for the sake of everyone, you know? Uh, lay down your life so you might find it. Deny thyself. The ultimate act of morality is the sacrifice of this measly body and this measly mind for all people. That's why we worship the Christ. Because we see in that image martyrdom. Not in the sense of, oh, self-flagellation, but in the highest ethical and moral good. The people that we consider most ethical, like Mother Teresa, like the Christ, have been people who without uh, batting an eyelash were willing to lay down their life for the sake of everyone. Not just for themselves, not just for their family, not just for the nation, not even just for the world, but for the sake of all beings, as in the case of bodhisattvas like Avalokiteshvara. You know? So, the understanding here is, when you act out of love from a contracted, limited place, necessarily it's evil. It, it, it's seen as evil. When you act from love, from an expanded place with, with, a, with a very wide sense of knowledge as to who you are and what the world is, it necessitates good. And we call that a saint. Now, you 
are on the spectrum of love somewhere. And in every encounter of your life, you either manifest that love in a contracted way, such as choosing yourself over others, or you manifest that love in an expanded way, choosing others over yourself. The entirety of spiritual life is to train you to make the latter choice and not the former. The project of moral development in our children and in the world is to take someone from selfishness to selflessness. You see? Now, please don't misinterpret this as pacifism. Uh, and, and, and that's why last week, Fabricio, John, and I, we made a disclaimer, but we had paused the recording so we could share a little more intimately and we forgot to make the disclaimer. So we'll make it now. This doesn't mean you um, sacrifice the body willy-nilly, you know, because the body is a vessel for helping others. So if you do need to fight to defend your body from aggressors, by all means do so, but do that out of expansive love. Look into the eyes of your aggressor and say, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. But also, ugh, swift uppercut. You know, defend yourself. Defend the body, but don't do it out of love for the body. Do it out of love for humanity. Defend the body so you yourself can throw it into the fire of the Holy Ghost. May the fire consume your flesh whole. But God cannot devour you if you've already been devoured by Hannibal Lecter. You know? (laughs) So as Fabricio so beautifully says, you are Shiva. But also, never forget the pepper spray. Shiva can spray Shiva in the eye with pepper spray, and all of it will be the hilarious Leela of Shiva. <laughs> mm. So remember, Jesus did go kicking and screaming, you know? Eli, Eli, Lama Sabakthani, Father, thou hast forsaken me. He wasn't like, all right, all right, take me, you know? No, no, no. He fought, but in the end, he was able to see in the eyes of the one nailing him that self-same love that he saw for Mary Magdalena and everyone else. You see, so um, this is the first idea that we must get across today. Uh, Every action is a call to either limited love or expanded love, but it is all just love. So you see what we've done. We've eradicated the need of the other. We've taken the one and demonstrated that the one thing can exist in different degrees in different places. You see how non-duality approaches evil. It doesn't say it's categorically different. It just says it's a limited version of what we are uh, aspiring to. This allows us to humanize our monsters, to see our shared humanity in political aggressors like Trump or Marine Le Pen or name your favorite, uh, uh, you know, nationalist. And the invitation of Advaita Vedanta is, can you just see in them a suffering person, a person who is trying like you to live a good life, but who unlike you lacks models and narratives to inform them as to how to achieve the good life? I don't think Trump was born in an ashram. He did not understand that pleasure and wealth do not bring happiness. So how can we blame him from acting on the conditioning that he inherited from his father and brothers? You know, he was born to a family who prioritized power. He was born into a culture that said, you are nobody unless you are the biggest person in the world. How can we blame someone for megalomania when in fact they simply were acting out the consequence of their culture. Not to say we don't ascribe agency to that, uh, not to say we don't reprimand that, but at least do it with love, you know? Do it as a brother to a brother. (laughs) Uh, Once I met Bootsy, 
Bootsy Collins, you know, from Parliament Funkadelic. And what a magnificent soul. And uh, I asked him, what is the secret of funk? <laughs> so I'm a big fan of funk music and Bootsy is my favorite groove for days, you know. And he said two things to me. One, he said, always come back to the one. He's talking about bass guitar, but he's also talking about non-duality. He's saying, if you are a musician, you got to know where the one is. You know, one, and two, and three, and four, and one. You got to know how to come back to the one because the band depends on you, the bass player, for that one. So Bootsy said to me, return to the one, you know, always come back to the one, emphasis on the one, you know. And the second thing he said to me, and this is I'll never forget, it's beautiful. I pass it on to you now with reverence. He says, funk is when the stranger shows up at the door asking for a sandwich and the brother gets a goddamn sandwich. <laughs> Or I think he said it better. I think he said, uh, funk is when your enemy shows up at your door in the middle of the night and asks for a sandwich and the brother gets a goddamn sandwich. <laughs> oh, and then he said a third thing. You cannot serve two masters. He told me not to do drugs. But anyway, those are the three uh, lessons from the prophet Bootsy Collins. Return to the one. Always return to the one. Grace and I were listening to Blood Sugar Sex Magic the other day in the car on the way to pick up Angela from the airport. And it was like, you know, bing, bada, bada, bing, bada, bada. That one comes down and Grace and I are in spirit right there on the highway. Perhaps irresponsible to be uh, so blissed out on the roads, Grace. <laughs> it's like doing Molly and then driving. <laughs> so come back to the one. And secondly, give your enemy a sandwich because that's the only way you're going to make them good. So we discussed last week that movie Schindler's List, and it wasn't after, and I haven't seen it yet, but from what we spoke about, it wasn't until after the uh, the Jewish uh, refugees gave Mr. Schindler a watch that he was able to confront his own evil. He would never have transformed uh, into a good guy if not for the beneficence and forgiveness of his so-called victims. So a victim's ability to forgive and love an oppressor is the ultimate act of flipping the script, flipping the narrative of power. How badass for Jesus to look the centurion in the eye, smile and say, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Imagine when a bully is holding your face in the, uh, in the uh, bathroom toilet seat and he's dunking you and you're, you're just thinking, Smiling, it's okay. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Don't you think that bully will run away in fear of you? They realize they ain't got nothing on you. Once they realize they cannot hurt you, they can't help but to worship you. You see, they will come to drag you out of your home and martyr you. When you smile at them and offer them the same love you would give your family, they will fall to their knees before you and become your disciples because your love will melt their hate. You know, it will. Uh, hate doesn't exist. It's a limited form of love. So when hate is confronted by love, given that they are the same thing, the higher frequency will spiritualize the lower frequency. So your only work is to maintain your own expanded state of love in every encounter of your life, especially those encounters with the so-called wrongdoers. This is why it was so nice to have the TikTok live because we got to meet a lot of angry people and we got to practice what we preach, you know? We got to sit here together and look angry people in the eye and smile at them and be unaffected by them. How beautiful, you know? Now Kant makes the exact same point. Kant says you cannot will evil. 
So as a kind of closing thought, in Kantian morality, there's this idea of acting according to duty and acting from duty. So when you act and it just so happens that your self-interest coincides with what is moral, can you be considered to be a moral agent? Can we give you any kind of moral cookie for doing what you otherwise would have done anyway? See, most of us are not moral uh, in any other way than through convenience. We're polite. We're not nice. We're polite, you know? <laughs> and as such, uh, what we want coincides with what is, is good, you know? So a shopkeeper, for instance, won't take more money than he's owed. You know, he will say, oh, you've paid me too much. Now, um, that seems like a moral act, but Kant says it's within the shopkeeper's best interest to do that. Because if the shopkeeper got a reputation for being stingy, he would no longer have any customers. So his self-interest coincided with morality, and as such, he cannot be considered a moral actor. So Kant says what it is to be moral is to do what needs to be done, especially when you don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, spiritual practice, you have to do it, especially when you don't want to. <laughs> Once you commit yourself to a spiritual life, there will be days where you do not want to go to the mat. Believe me, dragging yourself into your temple will be a nightmare. All you want to do is sleep. But that's when spirituality is most worthwhile. You must practice in those times when you least want to practice. That's what Kant said. You cannot be considered moral unless you can be shown to act only for morality's sake. You must be doing an action for its innate moral good without any kind of, you know, side benefit in order to be considered a moral person. Therefore, the Christ is the ultimate moral person because he is willing to do something that he otherwise would not in a million years do, and that is sacrifice himself for the greater good. So according to Kant, one can will morality. The reason one can will morality, dharma, is because it's closer to your innate nature. Dharma, as we described two lectures ago, trumps karma, desire and craving. It trumps artha, the desire for wealth. Dharma will always uh, negate its lower expressions. Moksha negates dharma, as we discussed two weeks ago. But for now, it's enough to say... Kant says, and remember, he's following from the scholastics like Anselm and Aquinas. He says, your fundamental nature is goodness. You as a reasonable being, as, as in fact, as an intellect, as a rational being, uh, your fundamental nature is morality because morality is uh, commensurable with perfect rationality. So if you were being a perfectly rational being, uh, and not in a Vulcan sense, in a much deeper spiritual sense, then you will be perfectly moral because you will supersede your base animal desires, which Kant, like the scholastics before him, called passions. You will be able to subdue your passions, like the lion in the eight of the tarot, you know, the major arcana, where she so beautifully closes the mouth of the lion. You will be able to subdue your passions in the name of morality. Now, Kant says, can you say the same for evil? Can you say that there are actually people in the world who would do evil against self-interest? Can you will evil in the same way that you would will good? You see, when you will good, you're willing to sacrifice yourself for it. But in order to will evil, it's hard to say that evil can be willed in and of itself. It's hard to say that there are actually malevolent people in the world um, who would do malevolence even when it came at a great cost 
Um, and yes, Hitler and Mao were willing to sacrifice their body, energy, and time for the nation, um, but they were still doing it for something. You know, they still got money from it. Uh, they, they were uh, helped by their evil in some way. Would anybody do evil if it didn't benefit them in some way? That's Kant's challenge. And Kant's challenge that one cannot will evil is exactly the claim of Advaita Vedanta centuries and centuries ago, which is to say, one cannot do anything except from love. The only difference is not in type, it is in degree. So that's what Advaita Vedanta says with regards to evil. You can only overcome it when you stop believing in it. Dispel your illusions with fear so you can relax into the strength that you already are. Power is your very nature. Can you prove the existence of anything outside of here and now? Can you prove the oppressor? No. Give up these thoughts of oppressor and oppressed. Give up these thoughts of love and fear, of good and evil, of beneficence and stringency. Be here now and see that in this moment, all is good. In this moment, right here, uh, apart from all your concepts, apart from all these ideas of duality, right now, feel into the vibration of the oneness of the witness, the oneness of experiencer. Regardless of the experience, whether it's one of pain or pleasure, whether it's one of sorrow or happiness, whatever experience might arise like the wave, can you remain the ocean? unperturbed, calm, watching it come and go, completely absorbed in your own self, you see. And from there comes tremendous power. From there comes the ability to dissolve aggression in calmness. From there comes the ability to love the so-called oppressor. And therein lies the secret in solving the ills of the world. When you go out and you actually meet these people, and we're not denying that they exist, when you meet them, when you recognize them for what they are, and we're by no means uh, proposing a delusion and making people seem better than they are. No, see them for the horrific stuff that they do. All of that, when you do meet them, love them. Love them, and not just that, see in them a shared humanity. See in them oneness. See in their eyes, the same eyes looking back at you from a different part of the journey, you see. So in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna has to do something very difficult. He has to go to war to people that previously were his brothers, his friends, his family, and lo and behold, his teachers. Arjuna is being called to task of killing those he once loved. In fact, those he still loves, those he owes obeisance and respect to. How can Arjuna do this? In fact, he is so overwhelmed by the moral weight of what it is he has to do, that he throws down his bow and collapses in frustration. He weeps into his palms and says, I cannot do it. I simply cannot do what it is I'm, I know I must do. Now remember, um, Krishna, before he spoke to Arjuna, he actually spoke to Duryodhana, you know, the bad guy in the Bhagavad Gita. He went to Duryodhana first and he said, bro, don't do this war. <laughs> it's adharma. It's uh, really a, an asshole thing to do. So um, can you just chill? Krishna did tell Duryodhana this. And Duryodhana says, um, I know that what I'm doing is wrong. So Duryodhana certainly knows that what he's doing is wrong. But he says, I just can't help myself from doing it. <laughs> you know, he, he loves power and money. He loves himself too much to not carry on with his evil. 
Now Arjuna knows what he ought to do, but he cannot bring himself to do it. You see, so it's the opposite problem. Duryodhana knows that he shouldn't be doing what he's doing, but he can't help but do it. You know, he's just following the inclinations of his animal nature. Whereas Arjuna knows what the higher calling is. He knows what the path of sainthood is. Sacrificing the body. Sacrificing one's limited idea of self. But he cannot bring himself to do that. Do you see how beautiful this is? Arjuna and Duryodhana are mirrored. Duryodhana is following the animal inclinations. He cannot help but do that. However, Arjuna is aware of a higher ideal, but he cannot bring himself to meet it. So when us in today's modern day uh, society, when we find an ideal that we cannot follow, our tendency is to debase it. Since we cannot elevate ourselves to the ideal, what do we do? We tear the ideal down. I cannot practice perfect chastity, uh, so I'm going to moralize away from chastity as a spiritual practice. No, all true spiritual traditions demand chastity and vows of poverty. You know, it doesn't matter how much sex you're having or how much money you're having, it's about lust and greed. You know, all spiritual practices ask you to abandon lust and greed. When that ideal seems like too much for us, we drag it down. Ah, but pleasure is so divine. You know, you see what we're doing? We're dragging down the ideal. Advaita Vedanta says, no, recognize that it's an ideal and recognize that it's difficult. Recognize that there is viparita bhavana, contrarian tendency, the desire to not meet the ideal. Recognizing all of that, strive to meet the ideal anyway. So when Krishna starts to teach Arjuna, notice the first thing he says to Arjuna is, get over it. Do you notice that? The first thing he says, even before he starts teaching any of the Upanishads, any of the Vedas, any of that high-flown philosophy uh, uh, that the Bhagavad Gita later comes to be known for, before any of that, he says, Arjuna, snap out of it, you're being a little wimp. You see, the first plea to the spiritual aspirant is by God finish with your delusions of weakness. You know, Arjuna, what you are doing now is most unbecoming of someone of your stature. You are a kachatriya. You are an Aryan, you know, in the true sense of that word, not in that weird like Hitler sense. <laughs> you know, you are a noble one. You are born to a culture that values heroism. You are born to men of action. You know, you are born uh, a hero. Why now do you act like a decrepit, weak thing? Similarly, the next time you find yourself weeping about something, feel the force of Krishna's admonition. Your very nature is beauty. Your very nature is strength. You are God herself. Why are you making a pretense at weakness? You see? Now, the modern-day yoga teacher would say, embrace your imperfections. Look, I also, I'm a yoga teacher. I do Prozac, no? I'm also depressed like you. I'm unhappy. You're unhappy. We're all unhappy. Here we are in the studio and that's okay. You see, they have brought down the ideal of South Asia here. They have brought down the ideal of happiness and settled for a contented placitude in this pretense of weakness. Now, I understand why this happened. Because a decade ago, the Catholic Church made you feel like you were born in sin. So now uh, you must embrace weakness because the alternative is guilt. <laughs> You seem to be caught between a rock and the hard place. In South Asia, we say, no, no, no. Remember your ideal. It can be achieved. Everyone has done it. Why can't you? And when you feel like whining, like grumbling, like complaining, snap out of it. 
That's what Krishna says. It's an action philosophy. He says, snap out of it. Come to your senses. All this whining, all this belly aching is not going to resolve the problem. Spiritual practice alone will do that. So the next time we feel tempted to snap at someone, to bellyache, to grumble, to whine, take it to the mat. Take it to Kali. Redirect that feeling into determined spiritual practice. That's the first teaching of the Gita and perhaps the most important teaching. If you take nothing else from today's lecture, to believe in evil is to disempower yourself. It's to see the world as a place of great threat. It's to see other people as fundamentally different from you, as dangerous wild cards. How disempowering is that narrative? To believe in fear is to debilitate yourself with delusions of weakness, you see? So we say for strength, in the name of strength, be gone these illusions of weakness. Be gone all disempowering narratives. And with that, dual, dual, dualistic thinking must go. You know, let's declaw the devil, so to speak. You know, it's almost like the devil pops out wearing a devil mask and he's like, ah, I'm the devil. And you're like, haha, I know who you are. You're God. And the devil takes off the mask and he's like, all right, I'm going to go scare someone else. <laughs> you see, <laughs> that's from Ramakrishna. He says, Maya is like someone dressed like a lion. When Maya bears its claws and fangs in the form of some suffering in your life, smile and says, swiper, no swiping. I know that you're God coming to me in the form of this heartbreak, in the form of this uh, exquisite pain in the body. And just like that, notice what will happen. In your moment of suffering, if you instead entertain thoughts of strength, watch how that suffering dissolves like a bad dream. It's almost like your body goes, oh yeah, I can't handle this. You've come to Wednesday Asana um, at this studio, um, and all of you have been in a pose, Utkatasana maybe, where you were struggling, and then you smiled and you felt like this struggle was okay. And suddenly, discomfort stopped being suffering. It just became another sensation, another feature of the moment, you see. So if nothing else, let the Bhagavad Gita teach us this. Strength, strength in the face of our weakness. And more than that, strength manifested as action. Action as spiritual practice, you know. The next sentence that Krishna gives Arjuna is, He who thinks he is the slayer and he who thinks he is slain, both are ignorant of the truth, O Partha. Now Arjuna receives non-duality. Krishna teaches Arjuna uh, the Upanishads, the idea that bodies dying do not equal people dying, that we trade bodies as one trades clothes. Arjuna learns reincarnation. And that theory is empowering for him because it teaches him that he's not defined by his actions in this life, that he will have unlimited time to atone for it. You know, even if he gets to the end of this life and he hasn't, and by the way, for Arjuna, that's a very real possibility. He is, after all, going to war. So in all likelihood, he only has 20 minutes left to live. Um, but Krishna assures him, even if you die in this body, you will just get another and you can continue your work. Fear not, you have time. You have time to atone for your evil. You are not a lost cause. You are not damned in this life. There is more. Um, and if you're in school, so what you get held back another year? It's okay, you know, finish algebra, just do it and then come to calculus. So Krishna says to Arjuna, practice, practice above all practice, uh, practice from a place of strength. And as such, you will be freed once and for all from all evil, from all fear, and you will abide eternally in the self, which is the self-same self of love. All right, let's close there. 
Rejoice for those who have uh, died. What is it? Rejoice for those who have transformed into the force. Mourn them do not. Miss them do not. <laughs> Yoda channeling Ar- Ar- Krishna. <laughs> okay. Let's close today with our sound of Om. And I invite you all in this Gayatri Mantra to throw into the Vedic fire of this mantra all your pretenses of weakness. Let us together sacrifice every thought that debilitates us. And let us leave this room together in strength, in poise and in majesty, willing to sacrifice ourselves completely for the good of the all. All right. Swaha Tatsawitor Warenyam Bargo de Wasya Dimahi Dioyona Pracho Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Om, I pray unto thee, radiant source of light, thou who art not different from me, I pray unto thee that each and every one of my thoughts may be saturated in strength. May all of my contemplations be illuminated by thy radiance, and may I never forget the way home to my very own self. In the name of that which is most sacred, Om, peace, peace, peace.